0: Okay, Mark chapter 12. Let's uh, pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, uh, that you've given us your word to instruct us, instruct us to guide us and to shine light on your son that we might grow in knowledge of him and knowing him better we will become more like him may that be what you do through your spirit tonight lord may we be changed and may you be glorified amen okay we're in mark chapter 12. And we're picking up in verse 18. Verse 18. So um, as I mentioned briefly this morning, we've we've come to the end of a discipleship training in Mark's Gospel. We've come to the point now where, um, where the the time of the death. The burial and the resurrection has come. And it begins with Jesus going to Jerusalem, into the temple on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. He did that on the 10th of Nisan. It was the time that the Passover lamb was presented in the temple to make sure that it was without blemish. And so in this section, Mark is, in in essence, presenting the lamb. Uh, The lamb would have been tested for several days, and so it is with Jesus, that he has been tested. And we had uh, the, the, uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians try and trap him last time by um, bringing the issue of taxes to him. And this time it is the Sadducees. It is the Sadducees. So let's just read through that passage and, uh, and then we'll unpack it. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection... And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring, and the second took her and died and left no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as his wife. Jesus said to them, "This is not the reason, Is this not the reason that you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So, let's unpack it all. Um, The Sadducees come to him, and, and they say there is no resurrection, which, as I've said many times before, is why they were sad, you see. They didn't believe in the resurrection. By the way, that's an Arnold Fruchtenbaum joke. You might have guessed. He's, he's fond of that one. Um, the reason for that is, is that the, the Sadducees were, were a strange bunch. Let's talk about them first and get our lie of the land. The, the Sadducees were in one sense theologically conservative and in one sense theologically liberal. Um, They were a bunch of people who were uh, part of the aristocracy, um, powerful wealthy families who had control of a temple and the temple services. And they were meticulous that things were done according to the law of Moses. With regards to the law of Moses, it could be argued that the the Sadducees were stricter than the Pharisees. We've already seen in Jesus' dealing with the Pharisees that they would twist the law for their own benefit. And they would take what Moses said and they would twist it and change it so that they could benefit from it. The Sadducees were the ones that would say, no, that's not okay. They were far more conservative with the text in that regard. Um, Politically, because of their position of power, they were very liberal. Whereas the Pharisees were opposed to Roman rule, the Sadducees actually were were quite Hellenistic. They were kind of... um, fans of the, of the Greek uh, culture and what have you, because they liked their position. They didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to affect Roman rule. They didn't want to... They just liked things as they were. They were the beneficiaries of the situation. But in another sense, they were theologically liberal, because like liberal Christians today, and I use the term Christian very loosely there, those who def- call themselves Christians but really aren't, lot of liberal Christians today will uh, deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees denied the resurrection, amongst a few other things. And the reason for that is not because they didn't believe the Bible. As I've said already, I think they were more strict on actually keeping the law and not twisting it than the Pharisees were. The reason is, is because the key passages that speak about resurrection in the Old Testament. We in the New Testament have resurrection so often, you know. Christ was resurrected. He is the first fruit of resurrection. We are to be resurrected. We are to have um, resurrected bodies. It's, It's such a central theme. Paul talks about it so often. But actually in the Old Testament it wasn't mentioned that much. And the key passages in the Old Testament are Daniel 12, verse 2, Isaiah 26, verse 19, and Job 19, verses 25 and 26. They're the three classic passages of, uh, con- of the Old Testament concerning the resurrection. Now, why is that significant? That's significant because none of them are in the Torah, the books of Moses. And the Sadducees, they were very strict about the law, but the law was the only part of the Old Testament that they took as being uh, inspired. They didn't believe in the prophets, they didn't believe in the writings, To them, it was all about Moses and the law. That's why they were the ones preserving the temple sacrifices. They're the ones that Jesus really railed against in his sermon in the temple, preaching against the system there and how it was being abused. So we already know that Jesus has issues with even their interpretation, but that's the background, that's where they are. And so because they don't see it in the law of Moses because they don't consider Daniel, Isaiah, and Job to be inspired, it is such that they didn't hold to the resurrection. Now, because they were so strict on the law, in many senses they were a little bit smarter even than the Pharisees. And they would sometimes be known for twisting the Pharisees and catching them in their own in their own tricks, as it were, and giving them little... Um, quizzes but giving them little problems, little riddles, to try and make the Pharisees look stupid and, and often did, did exactly that. And so they come to Jesus as Jesus has, um, has uh, been tested already by the Pharisees. They come with one of the tests that they would have, they would have put to the Pharisees and, and this is their test. And the idea of their test is to show that the resurrection is just a silly idea. It's not something that, that should be believed in, that they are correct in their assessment. And it goes something like this. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise it up for his brother. Okay? So you've got a couple of guys who are brothers. Brother one takes a wife and marries. Before they have a child the man dies. There is an obligation for the brother to then marry that same woman. Now that's a bizarre thing to us. A very strange thing to us. But it's in the Law of Moses. I'll read it to you. It's in Deuteronomy 25. Uh, It says this, if if brothers dwell together, this is Deuteronomy 5 and verse 5, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and he has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her her husband's brother shall go into her and take her uh, as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that this name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then the brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he persists and says, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so it shall be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. What a bizarre passage. A few things to the background of that. Firstly, just consider this, that at that time, the perpetuation of a family was crucial. You've got to understand that the promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, is all to do with the promises to their descendants. That's going to become relevant to this passage, and we're going to talk about it a little while later. But it, be- it is the promise to the descendants, and God's covenant faithfulness is proven in what He does to the descendants of those to whom He's made the covenant. And this is why the issue of Israel is so important, because they are the descendants. And each of the tribes were distinct. And the lines and the lineage was kept. And so when we go to uh, the prophecies, as we saw at our recent conference of the Messiah, there's the, there's the prophecies concerning the seed. That, that first of all, that it's prophesied in Genesis that, uh, that the Messiah would come f- from the seed of the woman. Then specifically, it's going to be through Abraham then specifically through the son, Isaac, and then specifically through his son, Jacob, not through Esau. And then we later on in Genesis learn that the Messiah will descend from one particular tribe of Israel, of Jacob, and that is the tribe of Judah. But later on, we learn that he will become from a specific family within that tribe, and that is the family of David. And and so we have this narrowing of the line, and so lineage was incredibly important. So, if a man marries a woman, she takes his name, she's now part, she's left her family, she's now part of this family, she's part of that family and that line. Now, if she doesn't give him a child, then there is no lineage from that firstborn. And in the society, the firstborn had importance. Now, all of this, this is why we have the squabbles between Jacob, uh, between, uh, Jacob and Esau. This is why we have uh, the issue with, with Isaac. We have all of these issues of firstborn because it's such a key issue. Because we have God's unique, beloved son, Christ, that this is all going to work through. So there is a kind of picture of Christ at the end of this. But the firstborn was important. So then it falls to the next, to to the the remaining brother, to to then take that wife and make sure that there is a descendant from that family name. Now he can marry somebody else and continue the family name, but not through the firstborn. And the firstborn is the one who has the inheritance, the privileges, and carries the name and the reputation of the family. And so, when the second brother would then have a child with the wife, that would be considered the child of the first brother. And so, the first brother, though he's dead, still has his inheritance in regards to the seed. And it's because of the importance of lineage, it's because of the importance of the firstborn, that this existed. And a lot of it is going to be for the benefit of the woman, the widow. She then gets to have to be in the same family. She gets to do what she wasn't able to do before, to have the child for the family. And therefore, when it comes to judgment, should the man refuse to marry her, she is the one that pulls off his sandal and spits in his face. She's the one that, in the presence of the elders' note, she wouldn't get away with it if the elders weren't around. But that's the time where she's able to rise up with the authority of the elders against the man and say, you were supposed to marry me and you're not doing so. And then his name will become one of shame. His family name will become one of shame because he refused to uphold the honor of the family. So it's it's very alien to us. In In a culture today where basically you marry who you want to marry. Assuming they want to marry you too, obviously. But you know... We have to understand that our culture is very... This is a very new thing. That, you know, in in religious communities that arranged marriages were the norm and the way for, for the bulk of human history. And we won't even get into that and the arguments for and against, but, you know, we think of it as being terribly backward, but that's not necessarily the case. And these people at this time, this was how God governed them for them to do that. So I I, I say all of that, so when we come back to Mark 12, we understand that when they say, teacher, this is what Moses taught, we understand, okay, yeah, that is what Moses taught. That is the background here, that this is supposed to happen. So they have this hypothetical situation, okay? A man is married, he dies. His brother then marries the wife, as is her duty, Uh, his duty, and then he dies. And I don't know if this woman is some sort of black widow or something, but she ends up getting through all seven of them. And the key issue here is that none of them have a child. If one of them did have a child, perhaps the Pharisees could then turn back and argue, ah, well the one she'll be married to in the resurrection will be the one that bore the child because... there there was the permanence, the lineage created through that one. So in this this riddle, in this story, there's none of them that produce a child, thus not favoring one over the other. And because of that, um, they then have got this bizarre situation where they say, um, in the resurrection, when they rise again, which of course the Pharisees don't believe, Whose wife she, will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now there's one other passage, not a biblical one, that acts as a background to this. And that passage is, is in the Talmud, where there's talk there about the resurrection. This is Pharisees talking about resurrection they believe in. But the, the question, presumably posed by Sadducees, is when someone is resurrected from the dead they've been surrounded by dead people, right? Grave clothes, tombs. That makes them ceremonially unclean. So if someone rises from the dead, they immediately rise from the dead and they're unclean, according to your law, Pharisees. What do you do about that? And the Pharisaical response was, well, presumably they'll be cleansed, um, as required, but we'll wait until that happens and we'll find out what happens then. Now, that might not seem directly related, but it's quite interesting, because what happens here is there are a few presumptions that are made in this question. Presumption number one is that the afterlife, the, the, the hereafter, the, the, the kingdom life, is going to be the same as it is now. So now we have, you know... People who get married, husbands, wives, have children and, you know, offspring and lineage. And there is a presumption that when resurrected that that will continue. That's presumption number one. Presumption number two is that there will be a continuation of Mosaic law. Not only will life continue as normal in the sense of physically, and it will just go on, but Mosaic law will be part of that life. Because of both Sadducee and Pharisee, it was so central to their lives, that of course, this is God's law. Of course when God rises us from the dead, there will be God's law still. Of course there will. God's law is not going to end, it's not going to finish. And that's why the question was such a problem. Because Mosaic Law taught the importance of monogamous marriage. You couldn't have five wives, or six wives, or seven wives. You could only have one wife. So if the law says you have to marry, and then remarry, and then remarry, and then remarry remarry within the family, she's had seven husbands, then at the resurrection the law says she can't have seven husbands, she can only have one. Yet none of them have had a child, thus not shining the spotlight on one obvious candidate. So does she have seven husbands? How do you choose which husband she has? This was their predicament. It was based on the presumption that life continued as normal and secondly that that continued life involved mosaic law. And thus she couldn't be married to multiple people. And there you are, and there it's presented. And by the way, also uh, from extra biblical literature, if any of you ever fancy reading a bit of the Apocrypha, there is the Book of Tobit. And in Tobit there is a situation very much like this. Probably not a true story, but it was a story very much like this. And so that's probably where they get it from. So, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? It <laughs> doesn't just tell. Him. He says he presume he just immediately you you know you're obviously obviously wrong. This is the reason, isn't this? Isn't the you know you must know that you're wrong. Isn't this why you know you're wrong? So there is uh, immediately a presumption that they know that they're wrong, and he says you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now this is uh, responded to somewhat chiastically, meaning that he then he says the two things you don't know which cause your ignorance are your lack of knowledge, your ignorance regarding the scripture, and your ignorance regarding the power of God. And then when he unpacks this, he does it the reverse way around. So chiastic structure would be A, B, B, A. So when he responds, he then starts with the power of God, and then he goes on to the scripture. So that's how we'll go through it. He says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. Have you ever wondered where in secular culture people get the idea from that when somebody dies they develop wings and they fly up to heaven and there they are as angels in heaven? You often see that in cartoons and things of that nature. This is where they get it from. We could die and we're going to be angels. That's not what Jesus said. Not what he said at all. Let's have a look more closely at what he said. Firstly, he says, "Then they rise from the dead. They will, not, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage. So the, 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 the father giving the um, giving this uh, or getting the bride for the son, that whole process, the actual act of marriage, that's not going to exist anymore." Now, some people have used this passage to teach against the possibility of fallen angels, demons, procreating with human women in Genesis chapter six. Now, I don't want to get into that tonight on a large scale, because it's a controversial issue. I simply will say this, this passage doesn't help us one way or the other. It's not saying that in the resurrection we somehow become genderless. It's not saying that we're not capable. What it's saying is, is that there's no place for marriage anymore. Now, I think that going beyond this text, there are some clues as to why that's the case. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells us specifically that the very purpose of marriage, the whole way from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, right the way through to the present day, the whole purpose of marriage is to paint a picture, a picture of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. That's the whole point of it. That's why it exists and why it happens. In the next life, we have the fulfillment of that. We have, there's no no need for a picture anymore, there's no need for a shadow or for a signpost. In the same way that the whole sacrificial system was there to point to the one sacrifice, the one Passover lamb that was to come, which is Christ. So when Christ dies on the cross, the, the temple curtain is torn in two, the sacrificial system comes to an end, and the temple is destroyed. Why? Because we don't need that anymore. We've now got the real thing that it was pointing to all along. It's the same with marriage. Marriage is pointing to something. And when that something, the marriage supper of the Lamb, comes along, there's no need for marriage anymore. And so there won't be marriage as we know it in heaven. Or for the, or for the resurrected more specifically. There won't be marriage. That doesn't mean to say that we won't have genitalia, we won't be distinctly male and female and things like that. We don't want to read too much into this. What he's doing is he's simply challenging them. And he's challenging them because of their presumptions of life continuing as normal. Again, going a little bit beyond this text, we know uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse 53, where Paul talks about the resurrection, he talks about this transformation from the corruptible to the incorruptible. I don't understand it, guys. I don't pretend to. I don't think anyone tells you they know it all, they're lying. They don't. But there will be a sense in the resurrection where I will be me. It will be me and my body. But there will be enough changes in my genetic makeup that I will be incorruptible without sin, won't die, won't get old. But yet it'll still be me. It'll be my body, not your body. I don't go from being a man to being a woman or to being genderless or anything like that. It's it's still me. We could speculate forever what we'll look like, what age we'll be, all of this kind of stuff. I think we'll probably be adult, young age, like when Adam was created. Who who knows? Who knows? But we don't really know. The the, the teaching here and the point here is that God, when He raises us from the dead, is going to totally change us. It, It isn't simply a reawakening of us. It's not like, you know, there you are and you're old and gray. And you die, and then you're raised from the dead. Oh, and there you are, and you're still old and grey, and you've got the same wrinkles. You know, it's not going to be like that. There isn't simply taking this dead person and reawakening them, there is a transformation that goes that covers the body but goes beyond the, 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 the look of the body to, the, to the, um, the spiritual side where this corruptible becomes incorruptible. And that is why they didn't understand the, uh, the uh, power of God. They didn't understand that the power, this isn't simply God saying, okay, dead person up. This isn't a raising of Lazarus as he was before. This is, a, this is a, the, the transformation of a person into their glorified body where there is no more sin. They don't know or understand the power that God has. And isn't it interesting that when we've seen Paul refer to the power of God and the Holy Spirit working within us, that he links back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 1. That is the evidence of the power of God. It's resurrection. Into glorified bodies, resurrection, and that's what we will be. We will be resurrected into glorified bodies. So I don't think that, that we want to read as much as some read into this. We will be like the angels in the sense of, did you ever come across the archangel, the archangel's wife? Did, did, uh, did Gabriel or Michael have a wife? No, there's no indication, there's no suggestion. Why? Because they are enamored with God. They are in the presence of God. And what we do in our lives with the marriages and giving away to marriage is we create a picture of something better that is to come. And at that time there will be something better, something the angels have, which means there will be no marriage anymore. And then Jesus goes on to the second part of this. He says, for when they rise from, um, sorry, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You're quite wrong. Now, this is where he says you don't know the power of God, but he also said you don't know the scripture. And it's interesting here. this. And I, and I like this. I like this a lot. He doesn't quote Daniel 2. He doesn't quote Isaiah 26. And he doesn't quote Job 19. None of those passages would have been accepted as scripture by the Sadducees. If Jesus had quoted them, he'd have been right. They were scripture, and they should have believed them but they wouldn't have understood that argument. So Jesus meets them where they're at. He gives them a response that they can accept. And I think that's wonderful. I think that shows something really quite precious in the heart of God. Sometimes we might be wrong about something, but we might just genuinely not be able to see it. Does that leave us at a A point of no progression? No, it doesn't. God will meet us where we're at. Show show us what we we can know so that we can move forward to a point where we can know more. And that's what he does with them. He points them to the law. He points them to Moses, which they they did believe. And specifically, he points them to Exodus chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, and the burning bush. And there at the burning bush, God, as we know, speaks out of the bush and says, I am the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so God says, I am the God of these people. Now, there's much scholarly debate at this point. The standard response here is simply that, God is, um, that what God is saying is, I am the God of Abraham." Not I was, but I am. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. See, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. They're still alive. That's, that's the point. Uh, then, then much of modern scholarship will disagree with that for two reasons. Firstly, they'll disagree with it because the verb in the present tense, the verb to be, I am, isn't actually in the text. It's not there in the Hebrew, and it's not there in the Greek translation either. It's just not there. It's presumed. In these languages, they would often go without a verb. So it's not there in the text. And secondly, the argument is simply that, that these people haven't had a resurrection yet. So it's not really an example of that. Well, I would simply say this, two things in response. Firstly, I'd say the verb might not be there, but the understanding of the verb surely was. That's what implication means. So I think the way that the argument flows, there seems to be an implication from Jesus that Moses was saying that he is the God of these people, as if their story's not ended. But I do accept that they haven't resu- been resurrected yet. That is a good point. But let's take those two things and put it together. There is here a far broader point. God is going to take Moses, this is God meeting with Moses, Right? God meets him in the burning bush. And he's going to take Moses and he's going to raise him up. And if you read through the rest of Exodus 3, which I've done in preparation, you see God saying to Moses, this is what I'm going to do with you. You're going to go back to to Egypt. You're going to go to Pharaoh. This is what's going to happen. And it's the beginning of Moses' story of of him being spoken to and met with by God. And his whole story is is him and God meeting in a way that God didn't meet with other people. And Moses was so unique in, in this. So I said so unique, that's redundant. He's unique in this regard, in that he, um, he had this special role that others didn't have. And he was, God made a covenant with Israel through Moses, and that's why we call it the Mosaic Covenant. And there were all in that covenant, all these laws and rules and regulations. Apparently there's 613 of them, so I'm told. I haven't counted them myself, but but that's the law of Moses. He is associated with it. And he is this great man in the Pharisees' thinking, he's this great man in the Sadducees' thinking. And God did these amazing things through Moses, and he made a covenant with him. And what they do, what Jesus is doing, he's taking the man they look up to, the man that they believed in, the man whose law they accepted, the man whose covenant they accepted. They're, they're looking at, the, he, Jesus is pointing to that man and to where he started. And he's saying, this man came to God, or God came to him, on the basis of his faithfulness to the ones before. Right? We can see that. So Moses shows up and says, "Wow, well, what's this? Who's this? He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of the patriarchs. I'm the God of the one before you. Now I think this is more the point that is being made here, okay? Do you Sadducees trust God's dealings with Moses? Well yes, we, we do. Do you Sadducees believe that the laws that God gave to Moses are laws that should be kept? Well, yes, more than anyone else, even more so than most Pharisees. We believe that. So do you you, uh, Sadducees believe that what God says to Moses is faithful and can be trusted? Well, yes, of course we do, they would say. Well, what's the basis of Moses' trust in God? The basis of Moses trusting God and therefore the basis of the Sadducees trusting Moses is God's faithfulness to Abram, Isaac and Jacob. Three times to each of those individuals, to Abram and separately to Isaac and separately to Jacob, God says, to you... AND your seed, I give this land. When did Abraham have the land that God promised? Never. When did Isaac have all the land that God promised? Never. When did Jacob have the land that God promised? Never. When have any of the seed had all the land with all the boundaries that God promised? Never. Is God faithful? Will he keep his covenant? If he's going to keep his covenant, there has to be a resurrection. There has to be. And I think that more than the actual implied verb and present tense and all that, I think that's the implication. The implication is you trust Moses, and the basis of Moses' trust in God was his faithfulness to the patriarchs. And they haven't received what was promised yet. How's God going to fulfill his promises? How can God be trusted? So he's, in a sense, throwing a puzzle back to them. How can you trust Moses unless you trust the promises to the patriarchs and to believe that those promises will be fulfilled, you have to believe in a resurrection? Checkmate. That's what he's doing, I think. He is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. You are quite wrong. And so he shows them from their own scripture that they believed. He shows them that in reality, they misunderstand the power of God in being able to transform a person and changing life and making life different in the, in the resurrection. And also, they don't understand their own scriptures, which despite no explicit statement of resurrection, certainly at the very least, on multiple occasions, implied a resurrection on the basis of God keeping his promises. And so, the Sadducees are tricked. Our other gospel accounts here... Um, talk about them being astounded and what have you. And Jesus, once again, in the midst of testing, has proven himself to be worthy of testing, to be unblemished, an unblemished lamb. One last thing. Notice the nature of the testing. The nature of the testing. The nature of the testing is that It doesn't simply prove Jesus to be clever, it points to what Jesus is about to do. What's happening here is he's pointing to God keeping his covenants with Israel. How is God going to keep his covenants with Israel? How is God going to accomplish resurrection? He's going to do it all through his Lamb. Here's another example of an Old Testament promise involving the patriarchs that implied a belief in resurrection. God says to Abraham, Hey, Abraham, go take your son Isaac up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. What did God promise him? That Isaac would be the chosen seed. And yet, Abraham held up the knife and was about to plunge it down when God said, Stop. Why? Why would he kill the son if that's the son, if that son, not any other son, not a future son, not a later son, that son was the son that God specifically said it will have to be through that son. Abraham believed that if he killed Isaac that God would raise him from the dead. And we've seen already in chapter 12 with the link to the beloved son that this beloved son theme is in our mindset. The faithfulness of God is seen in resurrection, in, the, in the, the keeping of a covenant with Isaac through him not dying, but this is what it's all pointing to, the keeping of all his covenants through his son, his beloved son, who does die, but is raised again so that the covenant can be faithful and kept. That's what he's pointing to. Next time... We will come to the, uh, again, a little bit short. I could have put the last two sermons together, but then we'd have been here for about an hour and 20 minutes. So it's probably best to have them a little bit shorter. But next time we're going to come to the third of this triad. We know Mark's fond of his triads, his little groups of three. The third of this, of, of this triad, which is the testing by the Pharisees and the scribes. So the scribes will come to him and test him one last time. And... Uh, Mark then will have Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, and finally scribes. We know the Pharisees were involved as well, but Mark is presenting all these different leadership groups, all the people in authority, and they are all testing the Lamb. Why? Because they're the ones who had the responsibility to test the Passover lamb, to check it's without blemish. And these leaders are testing this lamb and he's showing himself to be without blemish. And so we'll come to the last one with the scribes next time, which is going to be a, a little bit longer than the, uh, the last two, because it deals with the commandments of the Old Testament and how, uh, and how we deal with those. So it's uh, quite an important one, the, 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 certainly the most significant of the three. So we'll do that next time. Anyway, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the richness and the depth of it. Lord, when we're in these passages that relate back to Old Testament and we see you working in Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy, and Father, we see that this plan of yours, of redemption from the beginning has been in place. What a privilege for us as individuals to be part of that plan. May we never take our salvation for granted. May we always know what a blessing it is. We thank you in his name. Amen.